Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, by fortunate circumstance of the cyclical and predictable nature of our calendar, the epiphany of our Lord falls on a Sunday this year. And by even greater circumstance, but by no means a random one, you get to be in the house of the Lord on the epiphany of our Lord. So whether you're our congregation's littlest believer, like Olivia Suan, who was baptized a short time ago, or whether you're pushing your way into your ninth or even your tenth decade of faith, you are not here on account of your own goodness. You're here because by God's grace and by His election, you have received your own epiphany of your Lord somewhere along life's path. But just what is an epiphany? We know that it has something to do with something being revealed which was previously hidden or at least obscured. Certainly the people of this world and even the people of Israel did not have a full understanding of who God was and how He was going to accomplish their final salvation prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. There were plenty of prophecies on how this was going to happen, of course. Some of them we heard today from the prophet Isaiah in our Old Testament lesson. And also from the quotation from Micah that was used by Herod's advisors to direct the wise men to Bethlehem. These small clues gave the people of ancient times a bit of a puzzle to consider. Each little revelation put more information at their disposal. And, of course, some eager and enterprising souls attempted to predict the when and the where and the how of the coming of the Messiah. It was not unlike those who in our own day and age uh, attempt to use the far fuller content of our complete scriptures to predict the time and the place and the circumstances of the Savior's second coming at the end of time. Of course, in order to do this, they have to set aside Jesus' own words that tell us that no one can predict it, for no one knows these things but the Father alone. Too often, though, both in ancient times and now, all the speculation on the when and the where and the how of the coming of Christ misses the what, and more importantly, the why. But speculation like this will always abound. It is part of our sinful nature to want to estimate and calculate and to speculate and even to just plain old guess about the things which God in His wisdom has chosen to keep hidden from us, at least for the time being. The ironic flip side of that, of course, is that so many times we want to ignore what He has revealed to us. Consider, for example, that which we know and that which we don't know about the wise men or the Magi who came to worship the one who had been born king of the Jews. We know, for example, that they came from the east. But we don't know how far from the east or whether it was necessarily due east. We do know also, and we can speculate as others have, that they might have come to learn the teachings about the Savior of Israel from Jewish exiles who lived in Babylonia or perhaps Persia but they also could have been from Arabia or even from as far away as modern-day India or even China. We just don't know. 
And we ought to be humble enough before both God and one another to admit that. Now, with apologies to Christmas card artists and to hymn writers as well, we also don't know whether these three wise men, three kings of Orient are. The Bible does not say that they are kings, nor does it say that there are three. Isaiah does prophesy that kings will come to the brightness of the Messiah's rising, but we cannot connect that particular verse to this particular visit with certainty. And although there were three gifts that were brought to the child Jesus, gold and frankincense, as Isaiah mentioned, and also the myrrh that was commonly used to prepare the dead for burial, three gifts do not necessarily equate to three visitors. What about the legend that three wise men were called Caspar, Melchior, and Belshazzar, or names similar to that? There's no biblical mention of names. They're quite likely or something that cropped up in the Middle Ages in misguided attempts to answer people's curious questions instead of directing them to what is important in this story. Also of legend rather than biblical is the idea that the wise men rode camels. Again, Isaiah mentions that the camels of Midian and Ephah and those from Sheba would come. But Matthew's account does not document the wise men's mode of transportation. There's certainly nothing wrong with imagining or picturing the wise men coming on camels, of course, but there's nothing to make a point of certainty or dispute about it either. Lastly, our nativity scenes which show the wise men standing reverently around the manger while shepherds are quaking and cattle are lowing could use a little biblical corrective too. Matthew writes that the wise men came into the house and saw the child. Clearly, this was not the Bethlehem manger scene. Nor was it likely that Jesus was a newborn infant at this time. This term that is translated into English as child generally does not apply to brand new babies. Usually, it did not get used until he or she was at least a year old. You recall that Herod had inquired about the time of the stars appearing and then later killed all of the male children near Bethlehem who were two years of age or younger. Therefore, Jesus may have been a bit older by the time the wise men arrived. It's entirely possible that the place that the star went to rest was not over Bethlehem at all, but rather over Egypt, where Jesus and his family fled to avoid the slaughter of the innocents until after the death of Herod. So what's your point, Pastor, you might be asking yourself? Are you just trying to ruin my sentimental impressions of Christmas? trying to upset my childhood memories or confuse us with lots of details. No, not really. My hope in confronting you with such things is that you'll be encouraged to read the scriptures not just more often, but also with a greater eye for what they contain and what they do not. Often we hear people say, or we might even say ourselves, well, I think the Bible says such and such. But unless we know what it actually says... Offering our opinion can be dangerous to them and to us. When we actually turn to the scriptures, we very well may find that what God has revealed is significantly different or is even silent on the topic. It's sinful for us to quote God's word inaccurately for purposes of convincing people of our own ideas or anything rather than his. Now, we have all fallen likely victim to it or perhaps many times. 
And for that, you and I ought to repent and beg God for the forgiveness of that sin. Another hope that I have in suggesting to you that you consider the content of Scripture more discerningly is that you'll begin to see the connections that God has put there for us much more clearly. Yes, the Bible is a difficult and challenging and mysterious book in many ways, but sometimes we make it more difficult than it needs to be because we want to carve it up into isolated snippets rather than trying to see its rich, broad tapestries and its intricacies. And we want to use particular proof texts that win, win ego-building arguments rather than trying to convey the wholeness of the law and gospel message to a fallen, lost, and dying world. Again, we should repent of our failings in this, for the power of God's Word is not to be used for our own purposes, but for His glory and to the benefit of others. Pray for the motivation to more diligently and more deeply read His Word. Pray for the Spirit's guidance for better clarity of understanding it. And finally, for the courage and for the opportunities to share that understanding with others so that they might have their own epiphanies. If we allow ourselves to be led by the Spirit to seek that greater understanding, God will not disappoint us. He will overcome our sinful desire to shape or to twist His Word for our own purposes so that He might accomplish His greater good. He will help us to see how Matthew's account of the wise men's visit truly does connect with Isaiah's prophecy and with that of Micah's and with the entirety of all the books of the Bible. After all, they are ultimately the work of God and not of the human authors. The wise men's visit does show us several things. First of all, it illustrates how the message of God's salvation in Christ had reached out into the world even before His coming in the flesh. The wise men were not just sitting around one night observing the sky and suddenly came to the conclusion on their own that this new star indicated the birth of a new king of the Jews. No, this idea had to have been planted in their minds from some source that had an understanding that the coming of this final great king of Israel would be accompanied by great signs, specifically including a great light in the heavens. This is not just the brightness of his rising foretold by Isaiah, but it is also connected to the prophecy of Balaam way back in the book of Numbers. You may recall that Balaam was summoned by the enemies of Israel to curse them while they journeyed to the promised land. But Balaam instead blessed them on account of what God had revealed to him. Among these revelations, recorded in Numbers 24, was that a star would rise out of Jacob, that is, out of Israel. A special star or other astronomical events such as comets or meteors were taken to symbolize divine validation of a king's right to rule. Balaam also prophesies there in that same chapter, Edom shall be dispossessed. Well, it's no coincidence that Herod, the king who ruled at the time of Jesus' birth, was not an Israelite king at all, but rather he was an Edomite, one installed by the Romans as their puppet ruler. So, when the wise men appeared, telling him that a star had arisen in Israel to indicate the birth of a Jewish king, he had good reason to fear for his rule. The scriptures had said that Edom would be dispossessed. And he, like those from other nations of the region, 
knew enough of the history and enough of the Jewish religion to realize that God had often worked on behalf of his people through supernatural means. Herod's interest in the location and the identity of this potential rival is then quite understandable. The deception and the violence he uses in response to it, of course, are manifestations of the same evil inclinations that we exhibit whenever we seek to shape things to our desires and our likings apart from the revealed will of God. The second important point of this lesson is that the Scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Even though Herod used Micah's prophecy about the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem for despicable purposes, it nevertheless shows that Jesus' miraculous birth took place exactly where God revealed it would long before. For nearly 700 years since the time of Micah, that information might have seemed of little importance. In its fulfillment, however, suddenly those very few verses take on incalculable significance. Thirdly, when the star finally stopped where Jesus was and the wise men reached the end of their journey, they were pleased beyond measure. The text says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were beside themselves with ecstasy. They may not have realized right then just what sort of king they were about to encounter, but even though he was merely a child at this point, they knew that something great had come into their lives. If only we experience such joy when we come into contact with our heavenly king. Our life of faith is more than just an emotional experience, of course, and if our emotions are what drive our spiritual well-being, then we are seriously messed up. Even so, how often do we allow our faith to be lived out in cold drudgery or in bland routine? The Creator and Redeemer and Sanctifier of the world has come to you. He has chosen you to be His own, to receive His favor of forgiveness, even to give you eternal life with Him in heaven. You should not just be excited about that. You should be joyful, thrilled, energized, and motivated to seek and to follow His will. A final key point of this lesson is that God continued to reveal Himself to the wise men even after they had followed this miraculous star and met the miracle of the God-made flesh. He used other miraculous means. He used a dream to show them His will. And by this, He prevented them from going back to Jerusalem and thus protected the young Savior so that God's plan and God's timetable of salvation would not be interrupted or short-circuited by Herod. God does this for you even today. He continues to reveal Himself to you in miraculous ways. The spoken word brings God's power into your lives. Each time you hear the declaration of absolution, each time you hear the proclamation of the gospel for the forgiveness of your sins, he brings you not gold, not frankincense, not myrrh, but the far more precious gifts of His own body and blood, satisfying your spiritual hunger and quenching your soul's thirst, even as it burns away your sins with a power brighter and hotter than that of any star. Maybe, like little Olivia this day, faith came to you as an infant or a young child, as you were brought to the font by loving and faithful believing parents, and there you were given the Holy Spirit's gifts by water and word. Maybe, like others, 
You were brought to faith later in life through the proclamation of that same word. And the Spirit chose to enlighten your heart with the wisdom of the Gospel. Either way is fine, really. God has chosen those means, sacrament and word, word and sacrament, to reveal Himself to us and to draw us near to Him. Through them, He grants us our own epiphanies. They may be personal ones, but they are most certainly not little ones. For the granting of faith is a tectonic plate shift in our lives and in our standing in God's eyes. No longer are you aliens, strangers, and enemies to God. Instead, you are made His very own children, reborn, not as kings or queens of the Jews, but rather as prince and princesses of heaven and earth. Rejoice then that the Lord's epiphany has come to you, revealing who He is and recreating who you are, so that you may join the wise men in rejoicing with exceedingly great joy at His coming into the world for your salvation. In the holy name of our God, who has made flesh and has been revealed to the nations, Jesus Christ, Amen.